Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Dr. Lisa Daly. Lisa has been working in the heritage sector since 2001, first with the Provincial Archives of Newfoundland and Labrador, then Parks Canada, and now as a tour guide and museum coordinator. She holds a BA in archaeology from Munn, a Master of Science in Forensic and Biological Anthropology from Burnmouth University, and holds her PhD in archaeology from Memorial. Her study focus is aviation in Newfoundland and Labrador. Up to now, most of her academic work has focused on World War II aviation in Gander, Goose Bay, and Stephenville, but she has also done some work on pre- and post-war aviation history in the province. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I feel like I should have had you on here ages ago, because I know you've been doing this stuff for, for a while now. Um, how did you get interested in in archaeology uh, generally? What, were, were you uh, an Indiana Jones fan? Uh, yeah, I guess I was a little bit of an Indiana Jones fan, um, but I actually started off with sciences, looking into biology. Oh, yeah. And my first year at Munn, actually, no, it was my second year, a friend of mine said, let's do a course together. So we went down through the book, and the first course we found that matched our schedules was a cultural anthropology course. And that first day with the introduction to all the different kinds of anthropology, uh, the professor mentioned biological anthropology. And I went, I'm doing that, and switched my major. Uh, so I kind of wanted to look at, I was always interested in history, but looking at the human skeleton and looking at the stories that you can get from the remains, uh, then it sort of branched into uh, aviation uh, when I came back to Newfoundland after doing my master's in England and worked on an aviation site. And while we did find some human remains on this site, uh, we also found personal effects. So we found house keys and we found the silver wings that the navigator wore and we had pictures of the navigator. And this site in particular, the pilot's son was still alive. So he was paying attention to the archeology span that was being done. And what it was just so much more of a, a story of these people and being able to learn about the people who were on this aircraft and knowing that it actually made an impact to people who were still alive that really kind of turned me uh, over to the aviation side of things. Mm. And where, where was that first site that you worked on, the aviation site? That first site was just outside Gander. Uh, well, I guess it's technically in Gander. Uh, it was a B-24, which was coming in on February 14th, 1945, and it was coming in on a snowstorm. But the pilot, uh, he was recommended that he go to his alternate landing site, but he was very well experienced and he was a colonel. So he pulled rank and said, no, I can land in Gander, and he didn't. Hmm. All 10 on board died in this crash. It was incredibly violent. But the only one to have offspring was this pilot. So the son, uh, his son is still alive, and he was just, really just wanted to know what happened. And we really do have an interesting aviation history here in, in Newfoundland because of our geographical location. You know, we were a really important uh, place in the history of, of aviation. So it must, it must be an interesting place for you then to study and to work as, as someone who's interested in that, that field. It really is, particularly for early aviation. I mean, we had so many of the firsts. We had the first transatlantic flights leaving from Newfoundland. We had the first uh, women to be flown overseas. We had the first solo female pilots. 
we had uh, were a jumping off point for many of the first round the world flights. So we were first for so much. And even when it comes to the war history, uh, looking at Gander, it's our geographic location that uh, is why they chose Gander to be a spot. And it wasn't even for the war. It was so that mail times would be shortened. Uh, So just given where we are physically in the world, Newfoundland has been incredibly important for aviation. Mm -hmm. When when you were doing your your PhD research, how did you select which sites you were going to work on? I did have an informant who gave me a list of sites, and accessibility was a big factor. Uh, There are a couple that are on the other side of Gander Lake that I just couldn't get to. Uh, There was another one that I'd still like to get to that's near Gander um, that was just that little bit too inaccessible. Uh, But then in other cases, there was one in particular, a Ventura, which crashed kind of between Benton and Gander. And this is one that was of interest to uh, some aviation engineers because it has the potential to be restored. So that one was on the list as well, even though it was kind of outside the the view of just focusing on Gander. Because if I go as an archaeologist and record the site, then they can get those extra permits to be able to remove objects. And hopefully in the very long term, we will have a Ventura here in Newfoundland. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious about what these sites look like today. You were looking a lot at kind of the World War II era. Uh, so when you are going back now to these places decades later, what, what do you see on the ground when you, when you go into these places? You still see a lot of the aircraft. And now it really depends on each site. Uh, there are some that there will just be a few little pieces here and there. There might be an engine, or if it was close enough to the Gander Air Base, they would have removed the engines. Um, These were things that if they could salvage, they certainly would. So the closer you got to the airport, the less there was. Uh, So I have been to some that are still on airport land, and there isn't a whole lot. It's really whatever couldn't be used. So really damaged engines, a little bit of aluminum. But then I've been to others that are further away from the airport, so they couldn't actually bring things back easily, where you can have huge sections of fuselage. And in those cases, what they would do is prioritize. So they would maybe take back the engines so they could find out what happened, Uh, take the propellers, take... Uh, Any of the instruments certainly had to go because those could not fall into German hands, but they might leave the body of the aircraft. So this one in Benton, for instance, it's a popular spot on snowmobile trails, but you have a huge section of the fuselage, enough that you can actually climb into it, and large sections of the wings. Now, there are other ones that you can go to, and there's very little left. These are usually ones that are just off the highway, or they might be on a really popular trail, and people have taken all of the aluminum. So really all you get left is uh, some of the old steel. So you'll get the landing gears, and you'll get some of the internal components that can't be sold for scrap. So they tend to stay on the landscape, mm-hmm. but everything else will be removed. And what I'm curious about, what, what is the legality around that? Because I'm assuming that these, at some point, then do become archaeological sites, which it's illegal to remove things from archaeological sites. Is that, if, am, I, am I correct in that with aviation archaeology? You are correct in that. Yeah. Uh, a few years ago, actually back in, I think it was 2007, 
uh, Dr. Michael Deal and historian Daryl Daryl Hillier went through and made a list of what they considered to be important aviation sites around Newfoundland. Now, not all of these had been visited recently, so they weren't always sure what the condition was like. Uh, but they made a list of all these different crash sites, and those were all given archaeological designation. Whenever I go to a site or whenever uh, Dr. Deal goes to a site, we will report it to, or before we go to the site to do any archaeology, we will talk to the provincial archaeology office, we'll get permits, and then these will become archaeological sites. And they will dictate what is going to be an archaeological site. Uh, for instance, I just worked with the town of Portugal Cove St. Phillips and went and did an inventory and mapped a um, plane crash in that community. It was a crash from 78 and the town is preserving it but the archaeology office says no this is still too young so this isn't going to be under us but the town are the ones who are protecting it. Mm -hmm. Now, can we talk a little bit about that particular uh, that particular crash, the sure. Portugal Cove one? Because this is one that that I think might still be in people's memories. Oh, uh, very here, much so. here in Newfoundland. Because well, you tell the story. You tell the story <laughs> of the of that particular crash. Well, this particular crash. Um, now, I kind of wish I had notes in front of me, but it was a group of people who were. Um, involved in Canadian heritage. Mm -hmm. So it was two aircraft that were taking off from St. John's and they were going to fly up to St. Anthony and then they were going to go to Lonsel Meadows. So they were visiting the national historic sites around uh, Newfoundland and the first plane took off fine. The second plane took off and the fog sort of came in really quickly and the pilot just couldn't see. And he ended up hitting a plateau in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips, and all 10 on board died. Uh, it wiped out half of the Canadian Heritage Committee. It's probably not the right name there, but it did wipe out half of the committee in that one crash. Mm -hmm. um, and then there were a lot of rumors that started swirling about this because... Uh, you did have pictures taken, and it looked like part of the aircraft had turned around at some point. So a lot of people started talking about how the pilot must have known what was going to happen and tried to turn around, uh, but didn't clear it with the airport, which is not something that a pilot would typically do. Uh, but other reports, and particularly talking to when the crash investigators were interviewed, and even when the owner of the aircraft was interviewed, um, really stressed that no, just because something is turned around, just because part of the airplane is turned around, doesn't mean he was trying to turn around, because these are incredibly high energy incidents. Uh, you can have just little pieces scattered over a mile easily. And if you do have a larger piece and it gets turned around, that doesn't mean someone was turning around. That just meant that the aircraft the, turned the during the, the impact. impact. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, and you, you talked about the, the fatalities on that particular uh, crash. Some people might be familiar with the Manning Awards. The Manning Awards are which are handed out by the Historic Sites Association. And that's named after one of the, Mr. Manning, who was one of the, the people who was on board that, uh, that crash. I never actually made that connection. Yeah. yeah that's, that's, where, that's where that award kind of originated. Um, so now you're working now as a, as a museum coordinator, and, and I know you've been doing some work, uh, you know, kind of to, to, to share these stories in a museum, museum setting. 
Uh, can you talk a little bit about about that? Uh, I've been doing a little bit now. I'm at the uh, Logie Bay Middle Cove Outer Cove Museum, and the year before I started working there, the uh, program or the coordinator before me, Katie Harvey, did a an exhibit about a plane crash in that area. So mm-hmm. I missed it by a year. <laughs> missed by a year, yeah. <laughs> but um, whenever I find something kind of looking into that I do tend to maybe write up a little blog post I just did a two-part one about a a helicopter rescue off Logie Bay and this was in the 50s so helicopters were still a pretty big novelty yeah Uh, so yeah often if there's something aviation uh, some sort of aviation connection I will kind of lean that way a bit but and there's so much history that uh, I do like to share it around for yeah. all the different areas for the museum. And you and you mentioned your blog as well, which is planecrashgirl.ca, which is the best like uh, <laughs> URL out there, I think. Um, uh, we just had uh, we just had someone interviewed who was the haggis lady, you know, and I've become like the ghost guy, and so now you've become plane crash girl. Like you've become you become like the 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 personification of your research in some way. Uh, what prompted you to start writing a blog about some of this stuff? I'm not really sure. Uh, after I finished my thesis, I kind of wanted to just share the information out there because some of it was a little hard to come by, particularly some of the names um, of the servicemen who are on these different aircraft. And I'd been at so many family members just anyone who seemed to have any connection to Newfoundland or Labrador might get in touch with me and ask about such things. So my idea is to start this blog and to have it in such a way that if you go and you search your grandfather or your great uncle's name, it should come up in the search engine. And that way you'll get a little bit of information about that crash. You will be able to verify that it's them because I'll try to have the service numbers there and just to make it a little more accessible. Now the Canadian archives have gotten much better and much more accessible even than when I started my thesis. So it's a little easier to search then but even then you kind of need to know what uh, archival reel you need. So you can't just search someone's name quite as easily. So if I put the information out there like that, it's there. People can access it. Mm -hmm. I was talking to someone the other day and I said, it's, you know, you watch television shows like Supernatural and they roll into town and they go to the archives and all the information they need is magically there. I said, like, that never happens. (laughs) Like, it's such a rare thing. I think that people who are engaged in like historical research know what a long and lengthy difficult process that can be sometimes getting to all the the little bits of history that are hidden away yeah and sometimes you just use the wrong word when you're searching and you can't find whatever it is and someone else says well it's here yeah and well that was much easier than (laughs) why did I have so much trouble when you started all this did you know anything about airplanes not really yeah so I very much rely on other people for information about aircraft uh, so I get to be kind of the archaeologist, and they'll be the, the they'll verify my plane information. Right. Yeah, in in the research that you have been doing over these number of years, is there a, is there a particular uh, site that stands out in your memory, or or a particular story about uh, about a, a crash that that kind of resonates with you? Oh, that's kind of hard to narrow one down. It's like down. asking for your favorite child, you know, like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But but certainly there must be one that you that kind of has a, a particular 
memory for you? Well, the the first one that I went to, that one is always going to hold kind of a special place. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm just trying to think now. Uh, potentially, and there, there's so many, but the there was a Digby that crashed in Gander. And this was very early in the war. There had been very few aviation fatalities prior to this. In fact, the only aviation fatalities that I'm aware of were uh, the flight that Banting was on. So it was Banting, the navigator, and I believe the radio operator uh, who died in that crash, and the pilot survived. And they were all sent back to Canada, because we weren't Canada at the time. But just a little while later, there was another crash, and it was this uh, Digby that had been out on convoy patrol. And there were actually a couple of them that were out at the same time. And one came in and landed fine, but this one in particular had to circle while waiting for the first one to land. And in that time, the ceiling just dropped, the weather turned. And I mean, we know how fast it can change in Newfoundland. And this one started to come in towards the airport and just hit the bog and crashed. So you had a few fatalities on that one. And it was because of this one that the Commonwealth war graves were established in Gander because they looked at it and went, this is going to happen more. It's inevitable if we have all these airplanes coming in and out. So they established the war graves. But I think what really stands out is actually my experience as an archeologist because to best access the site, you can go there if you go um, by the old railway and you'd actually have to cross where the check plane crashed in 67, but you keep going and then you have to kind of veer off from the railway and go out into this big, huge open bog. But the easier way is to and easier is relative, get clearance from the Canadian military and go through the turkey farm, which is a listening station in the area. And I drove up there that first day and I had the email out on my phone because it's so intimidating. There's all these signs that say, do not enter. And I had the email out and I was ready for people to stop me. And I pull up and there's nobody around. I'm like, this is even creepier than... (laughs) But I find someone and they bring us um, fairly close to the site. And I didn't even have to show them the email. They just said, yep, I remember the name. Perfect. Okay, we're good. But uh, we drive a little ways from the turkey farm and they park, let us park next to this radio antenna. So myself and my assistant, we go off into the bog. We're doing our thing. And next thing, after lunch at one point, there's, there's all these sirens and a helicopter takes off. And it's, I wonder what's going on. So we finish up what we're doing and we come back and it turns out all those sirens happened because the MPs found my van and they were ready to arrest anyone who came back to the van. Apparently they, they hung out by the van <laughs> for a while van, yeah. <laughs> until someone came around and said, um, you know, they have permission yeah, to cool. be yeah. here. <laughs> But I'm sure that would have been a little bit scary. You come back and you're covered in just bog. I'm pretty sure I was up to about my hips at one point. And you're tired and you just want to go eat. And that would have been wonderful to be arrested by the MPs. arrested by the MPs, yeah. Spend the night in a military jail cell somewhere, yeah. (laughs) Thankfully it all worked out. (laughs) Um, 
there are there are in many places around the provinces that have have uh, aviation wrecks, and and some of which are kind of more accessible than that particular example. Have you been to the Burgoyne's Cove uh, site? I have. I haven't done anything officially as an archaeologist, but yeah. I've been there. Yeah, because that's that is there's a trail that kind of goes to that to that. There site. is, and yeah. there's picnic tables, and it seems like from I, I've been getting pictures from people now and then, and it seems like since they put the trail in there has actually been less damage to the site um, since the communities because I think it was a few communities got together and it seems like there's more respect for the site now Mm -hmm. that you've got the trail you've got the picnic tables you've got signs up saying that there's a site there. Well, I think you know we had we had an archaeologist on a little while ago when we were talking about public archaeology and this idea that y- you know you can y- you need to educate the public in the value of these these sites. And so it's it's interesting to hear you say that 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 the more we kind of talk about these and let people know about the historical and archaeological importance of them, that that hopefully that leads to better stewardship of these of these sites. In my experience, it has. I know even in the few years I was working in Gander. Now I've been back and forth to Gander a bit, but when I was actively out there for my thesis. Um, The first year, a lot of people were talking about how people will go and remove things from the sites. And these people who were coming to my talk, they're obviously very passionate about history. And it was people like Frank Thibault, who has literally written most of the books about aviation and gander. But then the following year, a few people were telling me, and they're so proud that they caught somebody Uh, who was taking aluminum from one of the sites. Now, we don't know where that aluminum came from or which site, but it was local people who stopped him and got the authorities involved and had the aluminum taken from him. So it just shows that the community is getting together. uh, And I mean, this was a few years ago. Gander has done so much more since then, but the community, the individual people were getting together to help protect these sites and to make sure that people weren't going to be making a profit off of it Mm -hmm. uh, by removing aluminum and other recyclables. Mm. Uh, We're we're coming towards the end of our chat already, but I want to talk briefly about the Hindenburg, Mm -hmm. if we can, because I know this is something you've been doing kind of some interesting research around over over the years. Um, what's the what's the Newfoundland connection to the Hindenburg? It flew over Newfoundland multiple times. It flew over Labrador once, but I haven't seen any pictures yet. But I have been, as people uh, kind of approach me, um, I've been collecting pictures of the Hindenburg over Newfoundland, and I'm I only have a handful now, so I'm hoping to get some more. And I don't know if maybe we'll get them out and published or if I'll just put them on the blog but I've put a couple up there and collected some stories uh, because so many people saw the Hindenburg and it was such an amazing sight and yes you had a little bit of aviation going on around Newfoundland but to see this huge thing (laughs) and this was the Hindenburg was the size of the Titanic it was giant yeah and to see it just fly across Newfoundland and in some cases if it was high enough it would be silent And then as you got closer, as you got later in the 30s, when Nazism was uh, coming, you know, becoming more prominent, particularly in the news, you'd see this big thing with the big swastika on it. And it was kind of, oh, what's happening now? Which is funny, because the first time the Hindenburg flew over St. John's, they flew the German flag on Cabot Tower, because the Nazis weren't as much of a threat as they were 
later right. in the Hindenburg's yeah. history. And I know you're a bit of a, a steampunk, so like that, this whole Hindenburg airship thing, you must you must love it. <laughs> yeah, it's, there's quite a bit of airship history around here, yeah. so it, it does certainly add to uh, my steampunk passion. Yeah. You were just out in Harbor Grace. Uh, yes. What were you doing out there? Uh, well, I was participating in their Pirates to Pilots Festival. It was part of their Canada 150. Uh, I got to go on a wonderful hike out there and listen to murders. It was awesome. Uh, but I also did a talk about uh, the Columbia. So that was an aircraft that flew into Harbor Grace twice, uh, was seen in Newfoundland three times, uh, flew over St. John's once. But the first time it was in Harbor Grace, it was part of that race with Amelia Earhart for the first woman to cross the Atlantic. And the Columbia was in Harbor Grace with Mabel Ball, who was the Queen of Diamonds. So she was a socialite known for wearing tens of thousands of dollars of diamonds. She always sparkled wherever she went. And uh, so she was there with the Columbia, the same time that Amelia Earhart was in Trapassi with the Friendship. Now, both of them were just passengers on these flights, but it was the Friendship that managed to take off first. They were both waiting for a break in the weather. And the Friendship took off first, and Amelia Earhart became the first woman to cross the Atlantic by plane. Now, the Columbia came back a couple of years later, and this was with Errol Boyd, who was considered the Canadian Lindbergh, and uh, Harry Connor. And they uh, ended up in Harbor Grace for a while. Uh, and But then when they finally took off and crossed the Atlantic in the Columbia, they became the first Canadians to cross the Atlantic. Hmm. And Amelia Earhart has quite a Harbor Grace connection because she was there as well. Very much so. Yeah. She, uh, Her first solo flight across the Atlantic was out of Harbor Grace. We were just talking about Amelia Earhart before we started the, the, the episode today about there's this new photograph that's that's come up, which... There's all these there's all these great theories about what what happened to her, and very people get very passionate about you know the the possible or probable fate of Amelia Earhart. And so there's this new photo that may indicate may lend some support to this this theory that she was captured by the Japanese in the late 30s. And yeah, it's a certainly an interesting thing to come out because there have been so many different theories. I've heard uh, she was actually squirreled away and put in witness protection for some reason. Uh, and then, of course, there are the theories that the plane just didn't make it, that they missed the islands, or that they landed on, crashed on a small island and were never found. Uh, so whether being captured by the Japanese was a better fate, I don't know. But it would certainly be interesting to, if the mystery was ever solved. Yeah. Now, if people are interested in the mysteries of, of aviation archaeology, they can follow you online. Uh, where can they find you? Well, I've got my blog, planecrashgirl.ca. I'm also on Twitter, at planecrashgirl. And just to go with a theme, you can always send me an email, planecrashgirl at gmail.com. Figure if I keep it all the same, you'll remember it. <laughs> and do you want to give a plug uh, for the museum uh, as well? Certainly. Uh, so I'm at the Logie Bay Middle Cove Outer Cove Museum. We're under the town hall in, on Logie Bay Road. We are open Monday, sorry, not Monday, Tuesday to Friday uh, from 8.30 until 6. And on the weekends, we're open 10 to 6. Thursday mornings, we do crafts for kids, so bring the kids, uh, and we always accept group bookings, and the museum's free. So uh, it's a nice little spot, a very community-oriented museum, so we hope that you'll come visit. Great. Well, thank you for visiting us and coming on the show. Thank you very much. 
I'm Dale Jarvis. You've been listening to Living Heritage, a co-production of CHMR Radio 93.5 and the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. Find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Our production assistant is Andrea McGuire. We would love to know what you think of the show. Leave us a comment on the Living Heritage Podcast Facebook page or tweet us at HFNLCA. Thanks for listening.